trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and thanks again for joining us here on Access to Excellence. We're excited to be joined today by Tahima Lopez-Banyasi, who's an assistant professor in the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution here at George Mason University. She's a political scientist with a PhD from the University of Chicago and a strong focus on matters of race, racism, and anti-racism in the United States, with specializations on structural inequality, racial attitudes and ideologies, racial marginalization, and the politics of whiteness. She's contributed commentary to a variety of national and international media outlets, including PBS, The New York Times, NBC News, and Voice of America. Tehama and Candace Watts-Smith are the co-authors of Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter, the 2019 book that served as a guide to how racism works, how racial inequality shapes black lives, and how to combat that injustice. The book has taken on much more added significance in the wake of social unrest across America in response to George Floyd's death at the hands of police this spring. Tehama, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, let's jump right into it. The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks were in so many ways the match on the racial kindling in this country. In your book, you directly address these many stark injustices and the lessons we can all take from the current Black Lives Movement. What are some of the primary things that people should come away with after reading your book? That's a good question. It's a big question. The way we organized it was really to be truly like a guide, something kind of companion book to all the other things that people were consuming for information, right, about this movement, its unfolding and its continuation and its morphing. One of the most important things we needed to address was to talk about structural racism. Just that word there, or those words, right? Structural racism are starting to enter households in the United States and and to really differentiate it from that interpersonal racism. What we wanted to really focus on was just talk about how the precarity of black life is not just evident in interactions with law enforcement officers, right? It's not just evident in the criminal justice system even, but in the prisons, right, in jails. And what we wanted to do was start to connect the dots, to start to see a constellation of racial inequality in the United States so that people understand not just fully what's at stake, but how one thing can feed another. So we wanted that to be a big takeaway. We also wanted another takeaway to be that we need to start getting really clear about the language that we're using. We get hung up even within our own seeming like ideological groups about language because we're not asking enough questions about, well, what do you mean by that? Or can you tell me, you know, what's your working definition of this just so we can get on the same page? So we wanted to lay that out. We wanted to lay out the idea that progress just isn't going to come because this is how the world works, right? Like inevitably things just change. Like, no, we have to be part of this. And so we give an example of that historically about how people saw that there was real progress happening radically at the end of the Civil War with the Reconstruction period. And then what happened where, you know, when the political will amongst white elites was lost. And so we need to be actors in bringing this about. We all have a role to play. We also wanted to address that there are ways that we perpetuate racial inequality and we almost excuse it with 
something we think is, is, a, is a good thing, this idea of colorblindness and how that can be a problem. We wanted to talk about respectability politics, the idea that marginalized people have to perform a certain way to be acceptable for their grievances to be heard and addressed. That's been a strategy for a long time. There have been some wins for that, but it's never been a win for the whole. And so our subtitle is to make all Black Lives Matter. Another piece that we wanted to talk about was really emphasizing local politics. We wanted to try to, in a way, kind of make federalism sexy. And what does that mean? That means that for a long time, this idea of home rule states' rights has been the strategy to prop up and to hold on to white supremacists and like white racial dominance. Mostly it was seen right in the Southern states. We need to flip that and understand how racial egalitarians can exercise their power through the local politics. Because so many of the things that impact our daily lives, those decisions are made on the local level or on the state level. And then finally, we had a lot of other pieces that we just thought we need to affirm one another. The idea that you know we are leaderful, that we need to read widely. We need to eradicate second-class citizenship in every way, shape, and form. And so we had a lot to pack into this book. <laughs> and our, our press, NYU Press, was, was very much not only along on the ride, but encouraging of this. Well, your timing could not have been any better, that's for sure. One of the things that you had made sure to do in your book is really unmask structural racism and show how even well-meaning people can create racial inequality. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe give us an example? On the structural racism piece, there's just a lot of, there's a confluence of things that are happening that create inequality. So if, if you take housing, for example, and how it has been for decades racially discriminatory, if you are not actively addressing why it is that certain neighborhoods are valued more than others, even though the construction of the homes is of the same substance, uh, if, the, if the square footage of you know the homes or the lots are the same, it's the people who are occupying them, we need to undo that. And so the structural racism piece, actually, there, there are people who are intentional. They are, I would not say that they are well-meaning in, cre in creating some of these realities. But the thing is, that's not everybody. Some people are just doing what is status quo. They don't understand that disparities are being exacerbated. And maybe they don't even know how to intervene. So structural racism is something that we all need to play a role in. And there are some really bad faith actors. And then there are some people who just would do well to see how the local and the, and the state and the federal work together, how we can all work together collectively, how the role for grassroots organizations. I'll just end that there for right now. <laughs> well, you, you talk a lot, obviously, about Black Lives Matter. And of course, the Black Lives matters all over the news now, but it wasn't consistently making national headlines until the events of the spring. Does this surprise you somewhat that the group's message has really finally broken through and has resonated across America like it has? You know, it depends on what kind of media we're listening to, I suppose. Um, it depends on what kind of news we're consuming and what we're seeking out. It seems that social media in a lot of ways kept us accountable because of the firsthand kind of recording and testament, the way that social media in some ways, right, has democratized the sharing of information. And so BLM didn't fade away from that. But it doesn't seem, quite honestly, that national media 
has been attuned to a lot of movements right. and black lives matter is one of them right we can say we can say similar things about immigration reform we can talk about how in 2006 in may when millions of people had taken to the streets to protest for immigration reform that it was barely covered in the news. I mean, I was at a protest in Chicago in 2006 on May 1st. There were 600,000 people who were marching collectively and peacefully, and there was barely a blip on national media. So how these stories break, I think there's a whole confluence of things that make that happen. And these are the questions that bug social movement scholars, because it's like, how do you even explain when something like this, when there's a kind of breakthrough? Because people were paying attention, people were protesting, and people were calling for policy change. And we saw people running for office who hadn't previously because they felt empowered by the movement. And so I don't have an answer even for why then. This could have happened a year ago. It could have happened three years ago. It could have happened four years ago. It's not like there's a lack of evidence about the way that Black people have been treated by law enforcement and for people who take it upon themselves to be the vigilante mobs. There's plenty of evidence. So I sure. I don't quite know how to explain it. Sure. And history shows the same things happened before. I mean, took the images of Bull Connor back in the 60s, yep. really grabbed the media's attention back at the start of the civil rights movement back then as well. So right. this is really kind of the same, same on the same lines. I mean, part of maybe like, let's really talk about the pandemic, like what the pressures of the pandemic on people's lives, the, the how very clear it is, like all of our vulnerabilities, but then to see, so a lot of Americans are feeling vulnerable in, in, in ways that we hadn't before, right? Because of this health crisis. And then you start to talk about what does it mean to be an essential worker? What does it mean for people to be, the idea that people are, their lives are expendable, right? They are sacrificable. And then for this to happen also so flagrantly, you know, I, I, I think that the pandemic and that kind of consciousness raising did play a role in the anger, in the I won't take this anymore type of position. In a lot of ways, it's like the perfect storm, all of it coming together yeah. at once. Let me ask you this. I mean, this seems like equal justice under the law, equal opportunity for all should be a basic human right. This shouldn't be a political issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's also say this. The United States doesn't sign on to all human rights in the way that the rest of the world has embrace certain charters of, about human rights. So we're not even doing that. We certainly don't see, I mean, we don't treat healthcare like it's a human right. We don't treat a certain type of access to higher education like, like a human right. There's a lot of things we don't treat as human rights, but I mean, equality for all, should this even be a political matter? And the truth of the matter is that it has been since the get. We are living our part in this struggle as our ancestors have, and ancestors of all kinds in this fight. So, yeah, you think there's there's a lot of things to me that are no-brainers, but, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just one person. <laughs> now, the BLM message has been politicized. Have you seen that play out? And what's your take on the movement being reframed over the last few months? It's been politicized in so many ways. It's not even just a GOP versus Democrat type of thing. That would be way too basic, even though that's very clear that 
since the summer, there's been there have been a lot more Democrats that have rallied around or have adopted uh, a BLM platform that perhaps didn't feel as bold to do that prior. And I think the Democratic primary sifted some of that out a bit. But yeah, I how has it been politicized? <laughs> it's I mean we're seeing we're seeing the the retrieval of the law and order type of talking points. These are things that have been used. I mean, it was used before I was born, during my parents coming up. It was also used right after the Civil War. These are just tropes that get used over and over again. The thing that hasn't changed has been a, a target population, Black Americans, that has been used over and over in different ways to control what is, to what is seemingly out of control. Right. It's about power. And so that you have in our VP debate last night, Pence seemed to mourn a salon. He was mourning a salon during a question about Brianna Taylor's life. Why that should even be brought up at all is um, in in that frame, like, no, that's just not mm -mm, at this. But he'll bring up law and order. And, And it's not just a Republican thing. The Democrats have done this, too. They have done it in different ways. They have done it for decades. And so I think what has been becoming less popular, right, of, of late are Democrats using it now. I think that there's a little bit more pressure to be like, no, this law and order thing, you, this, is, this has got to go. But anti-racists need to be vigilant with all parties. To me, anti-racism is, is not partisan in that sense. It's about a principle. It's about a value. Well, the fact is the BLM is, is a big tent movement. It means a lot of different things to different people. Does that help or hinder the movement? I think it's a good thing. And the thing is, movements have always been that way, but the way that we historicize them, right, the way that we remember them and the way that we tell stories about them is as though everyone was in a room and decided we're going to do this thing, all right, and everyone just fell in line. And that's just not the case. It just hasn't been the case for all types of movements. What I appreciate about BLM is, and there's two different things going on. So that Black Lives Matter in its pronouncements is is really owning the local and owning the idea that people are experts of their lives in their place. They know their tongue, they know their state, they know, they know what the fight is. And that is something that is a big thing to say when you could have other models of people parachuting in and saying, I know, I know the answer. I know how to fix your problem here. I don't live here, but I know how to fix your problem. And so I think BLM has been good in affirming that local part. At the same time, you have the movement for Black Lives, which is trying to orchestrate a little bit more of a national effort. So there are interesting kind of tensions, but to me, ultimately, they're serving towards the same mission. So I think that that, I think that's a good thing. The same thing about leadership, that there's not a single leader, I think is a good thing because as much as I very much love the leaders of our civil rights movement, we don't know the thousands and thousands of people who were, you know, licking the envelopes, raising the money, doing the door knocking. They were leaders too. And when we only talk about a certain type of leadership or we talk about an eliteness of leadership, then that sends the message that we ourselves are not leaderful and that we can't mentor people, that we can't bring people up. And I think it's, I think it's good for democracy. And one of the themes of your research is the politics of whiteness. Can you explain to our listeners just what that is? Yeah, that's a good question. The way that I think about politics of whiteness is, first of all, whiteness is 
in a way, some ways should be called whitenesses, right? There are different types <laughs> of ways to be white, just as there are different types of ways to be Mexican and there's different types of ways to be black. And the kinds of attributes that are ascribed to whiteness and the power around that identity is something that is messy. It's made and remade. We, you know, we talk about race being a social construction, right? I'm looking forward to teaching class in the spring to talk about how is whiteness constructed? How has it been constructed in the law? How has it been constructed through the electoral system? What have been the ways that people have tried to shape whiteness in different ways? It's not monolithic. And so because it's not monolithic, there is contention, there is conflict. And that's where the politics come in, is in what does it mean to be white? And what does it mean for white people to how are they positioned towards either exacerbating racial inequality or being anti-racist champions? That's what the politics of whiteness means to me. What are the, some of the assumptions that you've seen that both sustain and obscure racism? There's so many. <laughs> um, <and laughs> so like, I mean, I could, I could just talk about stereotypes. Like those are huge assumptions. Meritocracy gets in the way of a lot of things, that idea. And I don't mean to say that there's no such thing as merit or there's no such thing as something being assessed um, of a certain quality over something else. But when we start talking about people and we start talking about their worth, meritocracy is no good there. If we're gonna, if we're really gonna talk about equality, people shouldn't have to prove themselves worthy of basic human needs being met. And meritocracy, there's so many things that get couched in it. Like, should we value hard work? I do. I work very hard every day, more so now than probably ever in my life. <laughs> and everyone who's listening to me knows what I'm talking about. And so do I take some kind of maybe pride in that or do I think I'm doing the right thing? Yeah, I think I am because actually I, I need to because otherwise things will fall apart, right, in my life. But a person should be seen as deserving things that are necessary for their life and for their flourishment based on some metric that some other person is making is a real problem. And stay woke, we, we try to kind of blow that whole concept up by saying, let's talk about the children first. Why, given that the language of meritocracy, how could you possibly even justify inequality in the unequal like lives that babies and children come into because what they weren't hard enough working they didn't put enough hours in that doesn't even make any sense and yet right. their lives are so influenced by these metrics by these decisions about who's deserving and who's not that's just that ain't right that's immoral yeah. and so i we you know we, we encourage people think think critically about what meritocracy means why do you think it's so important to cast light on these issues because they are everyday issues. They shape all of our lives. We are a country that believes that equality is important, that we aspire to being an equal society. And if we can't talk about these issues, we can't possibly do the work to meet our aspirations. It is literally about life and death. So we must talk about it. It's about life and death and more than gunshots and knees to necks. It is about people's life chances. It's about people's access to healthcare. It's about can you literally make a living to feed yourself? What does a living wage look like in art? And do you have it? It's about all these things. And so what else could be more important? I don't know. Now, the absence of local media is something we've talked about and it's something you see is very problematic. Why is that? And what do you see as some of the ramifications of, of that loss? 
Well, yeah, there's a ton of things to talk about with this. As it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement, when you have a lack of people on the ground reporting stories about what's happening in certain communities and you lose that, that you know, that finger on the pulse that could be shared with others, right? So if you don't know, if you don't have a local press presence in you know Durham, North Carolina right now in certain ways, right? Then you're not gonna know what's happening in the school board level. You're not gonna know even how people are translating the momentum of Black Lives Matter into policy, how they're trying to shape their lives. And those stories aren't just gonna come out unless there's some kind of spectacle, right? And national news will come to the spectacle. But a lot of the work that we need to do it's like really mundane. It's really like, it's grinding. It's very ordinary, but it involves all this. So it doesn't, it's not splashy, but it's important. And the more outlets you have and you, the more people you have writing those things, the more we're going to be able to get those stories out and keep us informed, keep us abreast and help people coordinate with one another. I mean, that's just one of the many uh, losses of an eviscerated journalism world. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, that question really hits home with me. I'm a former journalist, so I know exactly what you're saying. And I try to say this to my friends. They're like, well, they don't understand the role of journalism and the, and the significant part it plays in a democracy and holding, oh. people, account, uh, holding people accountable. And uh, I think you touched, touched on it perfectly. Absolutely. Has it surprised you to see how much attention your book has received? I've seen some notable comedians like D.L. Hewley have even jumped in on the action. Yeah, no, it, I mean, that's nuts. I got a text one morning <laughs> from my neighbor who said, Tama, Chelsea Handler is Instagramming or whatever you do on Instagram. She's doing this with your book. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I checked this out and there she was. It was like a two minute video talking about the book <laughs> and in Chelsea Handler fashion. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And then the next day was the D.L. Hughley thing. And I was like, come on, this is, you know, he had a picture of our book next to his and like, like four others. And no, it was like really shocking. We thank them. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. What's also wonderful is that I've gotten some very totally unsolicited emails from self-identified white men in Ohio who are saying, this book has been so helpful to me. I'm trying to get everyone I know to read it. I'm trying to get our library to have events around it. And thank you for writing it. I'm so humbled by this, that people think it's important or, or helpful. We couldn't be more pleased with that. One of the stated goals of your book was also to empower your readers, help them become knowledgeable participants in public debate, activism, and politics. How important is it, you touched on it a little bit before, but how important is it that we involve more people to work towards a better future for Black Americans, for all Americans? And what can ordinary members of society do to challenge that racial inequality that we see? If more people, if after reading our book, people more fully appreciate the importance of working together, we will put that in the W category because there's, you know, there's a lot of good work about people trying to examine their biases, think about the ways that they individually think about things and how they act. That's good. We need to all keep doing that work, myself included. But we really need to own our democratic processes, our freedoms, and make them work for us because that's what this government is supposed to be about. I don't want it to be about elite people making decisions about my life with me having no input. And I don't think most people want that either. 
I think that people are pressed for time. We're all exhausted right now. Some of this can be fun too. Like we have to have a good laugh. We have, I mean, there are pictures of MLK having pillow fights with his staff. You have to build in fun and you can do that. I mean, so, you know, people are doing um, a lot of Zoom you know, cocktail, you know, all right. kind of Happy things hours. people are doing right now. So what if, you know, we get on, we get on our meetings with our friends every Thursday and we write postcards to our, you know, elected officials, or we make phone calls on behalf of people that we want to see elected. And that's still time maybe we could spend together. When this pandemic is over, let's have potlucks and do this stuff too, right? And let's show, if we have young people around us, let them see that this is a thing we can do together, that you can have fun and it should be a collective thing. It's also important that people understand that the lives of black people are important even if you are not a black person, that we are all impacted in one way or another by how each other are treated. And when the lives of black people are when they're flourishing and, and, and doing well, like I truly believe everyone else who's also, who's not black is also going to be doing better. It's to me, this is not a, there's a big slice of pie for this group and the other part gets less of the pie. This is just the pie just gets bigger. So we need to reframe this kind of zero sum type of situation and see where your skin is in the game. Right. And we all have it in some way or another. Right. We have to care about that. Do you think we'll see a racially just society anytime soon or even in our lifetimes? I think that we can see more racial justice in our lifetimes. I will not have the hubris to think that our generation, the people who are alive today, are going to be able to fix all of our problems. If that were possible in a person's lifetime, our ancestors would have taken care of that for us. And so we need to play our role. We need to push for it. And if we don't act together, it won't happen. So that answer really lies with us. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. One thing I always tell my son is change has always begun one person at a time. You know, and so like everybody can make a difference, however small, and collectively, we can all make a difference. And, you know, right. hopefully we all will continue to do that. Yes. So. Well, that's a lot for us to think about, but it's going to wrap things up for us here at Access Excellence. I want to thank Tehama lopez Banyasi for her time and her insights. We want to wish her well on everything going forward. I'm thank John you. Hollis. Thank you all too. Yeah, thank you. I'm John Hollis, and thank you all for joining us. Stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D C R I. S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.